Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome back to another episode of Crazy Money. This week's episode is a tough one, but it's important for us to understand. We're going to talk about the opioid epidemic in America and the degree to which one family's profit motive helped kick this thing off and grew it into a wildfire that is now totally out of control. Did you know that between 1999 and 2000, 564,000 Americans died from an opioid overdose? In 2020, the most recent year for which statistics are available, there were over 68,000 opioid overdoses in this country. That's 188 per day. Think about that. Each one of those 188 deaths represents a son or daughter, a brother or sister, a mother or father who is not coming back and 188 families times 365 days per year who are destroyed, plunged into agony because of an unnecessary death that may or may not have happened if it weren't for the uh, launch of OxyContin. Now, folks, as I said many times, I'm a capitalist, and for the most part, I believe in free markets. But I believe that any company or any individual's right to swing their fist or pursue profits ends where my nose begins or where my health begins or where the health of my family begins. And when we see profits being prioritized over people, we should all stand up and say, this is bullshit. My guest this week is Barry Meyer, who is a former reporter at the New York Times and the author of a book called Painkiller, An Empire of Deceit and the Origin of America's Opioid Epidemic. Sadly, this book was released in 2003. He sounded the alarms early in this epidemic, and yet 19 years later, it's only grown by a scale of 10, by an order of magnitude. The book was re-released in 2018, and a lot of other books on the topic have been written and turned into uh, miniseries and, and, and movies and things like that. And that's going to happen for Painkiller as well. It's going to be a series on Netflix coming out early in 2023. In our conversation today, Barry and I discussed the Sackler family legacy. The Sacklers are the people who own Purdue Pharma. Their legacy, their family legacy of pushing ethical limits when it comes to the marketing of pharmaceuticals long before OxyContin was even conceived of. We talk about how Purdue Pharma made tens of billions of dollars selling OxyContin using these same techniques, pushing drugs, pushing free samples on patients, knowing that the drug was quite addictive. And speaking of which, we talk about how and why the FDA approved Purdue's claims that OxyContin was less prone to addiction in the complete absence of any evidence to suggest that it actually was. And lastly, we discuss the extent to which OxyContin kicked off this opioid epidemic for which there is no clear way out. Ladies and gentlemen, please listen, please consider, please share this conversation with Barry Meyer. Barry Meyer, welcome to Crazy Money. Thanks, Paul. Good speaking with you. Barry, what kind of writing projects are most interesting to you? I guess the, the, the writing projects that are most interesting to me are ones that uh, I discover things in the process of researching and, and writing an article, a book, uh, where my expectations going in change as the... Um, as the information changes. And how did you start writing about Purdue Pharma? Well, that's a long story, but I'll try to tell it to you as quickly as possible. We have a little time, so don't skimp. Let me compress 20 years into a minute or so. But uh, back in uh, 2001, uh, I was working at the New York Times where I spent the majority of my career as a reporter. And I was approached to an, by an editor who told me that he had gotten a tip 
from an old source of his, someone who worked on a pharmacy regulatory board, I believe in the state of Ohio. And the tip went, went as follows. There was this new pharmaceutical drug on the street that was being sold illicitly. That in itself wasn't unusual, but what made it unusual was that the manufacturer of this drug, the sales reps for this particular drug, which I was told was called OxyContin, were going to doctors and pharmacists claiming that it was far uh, less prone to abuse and addiction than prescription painkillers. And so that began sort of an inquiry into what was going on? What was this new drug? How was it being promoted? Why had it become so popular? And at the time, I knew nothing about painkillers, narcotics, the pharmaceutical industry. I was told the name of the company was Purdue Pharma, but I thought that had something to do with Purdue University. And I had certainly never heard about this extraordinarily wealthy and secretive family that owned Purdue, the Sackler family. You know, it's funny reading your book in 20. 2022. It came out in 2003, and you write in the in the new edition, the preface to the new edition, that you hoped the story would end after you stopped writing about it. But in fact, what was new in 2003 is far too integrated into our culture today. When you were doing this research, this was not oxy was not in the in the popular language. We didn't people didn't know what it was. They didn't know people who had died. Most people from overdoses from oxy or heroin or fentanyl, but today it's part of our culture. Yeah, that's been kind of the frightening part about it and, and the dispiriting part of it for me. You know, I was sort of a witness to the the beginning of what has become, I think, the most significant public health crisis of our times. You know, 100,000 people died of overdoses last year, which is a you know, a stunning figure. And certainly not all of those are connected to Oxy. The, you know, the, the opioid ep epidemic, as it is now known, you know, has morphed and changed over time. We now have these horrible illegal drugs uh, like uh, fentanyl that have taken over and are killing uh, growing numbers of people. But I guess what I was really uh, struck by was and tried to capture more in, in, in the most recent version of the book was the incredible failure of each part of our societal structure, be it the government, the medical profession, uh, the, the drug industry, civic organizations, uh, politicians, to do anything about this during the intervening years. I mean, it was, it's nearly 20 years since this issue first erupted with OxyContin. And until relatively recently, we pretended it didn't exist. Well, the Sacklers play a, a very important role. And it seems as if the private nature of Purdue Pharma allowed some of these things to get out of control fast. Let's go back in time. Who are the Sacklers? Where do they come from? And, and how did they come to uh, be so important at Purdue Pharma in the in the 90s and early 2000s? Sure. Uh, well, there, there are three Sackler brothers, Arthur Sackler, who is the eldest, and his two younger brothers, Mortimer and Raymond. And what's remarkable about the Sacklers as a family, and particularly Arthur Sackler, is that they're not just important in terms of the story of uh, Purdue Pharma and OxyContin, they're extremely important in the story of our society. 
and how businesses function and how drugs are sold and and what we see and how doctors see on television and how doctors treat us. Because Arthur Sackler, and there are all trained um, uh, psychotherapists, uh, very bright, talented people who all decided to make their money in business rather than treating patients. And, and Arthur Sackler's big contribution was to essentially invent what is now known as the pharmaceutical advertising industry, you know, prescription drugs, which are advertised to us on television, on radio, in magazines, in, you know, every conceivable way possible that this pill is is somehow going to make us feel better, look better, perform better, whatever the question may be. And prior to the, you know, what might be called the kind of warp genius of Arthur Sackler, the medical industry and the pharmaceutical industries kind of existed in separate worlds. Sales representatives for drug companies didn't go see doctors to, you know, shop drugs to them. They didn't track uh, what types of drugs doctors are prescribing so they could either promote their drug or, you know, pitch them on on, uh, drugs that competed with drugs that they were then using. They didn't advertise in medical publications. They, drug companies did not pay doctors to go out and essentially pimp their drugs to their fellow physicians. Arthur Sackler created all these ways of advertising, marketing, and promoting drugs, both to doctors and to the public at large. And, you know, when you turn on your TV and you're watching a baseball or football game and you see an ad come on for some disease or some condition, that's very much a legacy of what Arthur Sackler did. So he was sort of the the driving force behind all of this. Uh, He had a big advertising agency in New York. He created a company that tracked prescriptions that uh, doctors were writing. He created these phony medical journals that ran glowing articles about companies that drug companies that advertised with his advertising agency. It was kind of an octopus is the way I described it uh, in painkiller. And um, he dies in um, 1988. But by that time, he has set up his two younger brothers, Mortimer and Raymond, in in the drug manufacturing business. They bought a small drug company here in Manhattan that was originally called Purdue Frederick, changed the name to Purdue Pharma, move up to Stanford, Connecticut, and get into niche-type products. And one area they see an opportunity in is in the area of pain treatment, particularly the development of what are known as time-release drugs. So you, there are two kind of general categories of drugs. There's what are known as immediate-release drugs, and you can think about those as like, uh, you know, uh, Tylenol or Motrin or uh, things that you take and like immediately go to work. And then there are also, of those drugs, there are also so-called time-release drugs, which basically release their active ingredient over a long period of time, maybe 12 hours. 
and that's that's essential to to the the, the founding of of oxycotton and and before that ms cotton right the, the cotton right. stands for continuous as in continuous release and they use that 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 technological claim to to assert that that they could make these very powerful drugs non-addictive right right i mean they first used that claim to differentiate themselves from competing drugs. So, you know, what we now refer to as opioids, which were traditionally called narcotics, which would be morphine, oxycodone, the um, original, uh, the, the, the generic uh, component to oxycontin, uh, heroin is an opioid, opium, you know, the entire class of drugs, which are basically derived either naturally or synthetically from opium. Uh, you know, they've been around forever. And most of them, uh, like a Percocet, Vicodin, are older drugs that were so-called immediate release drugs, you know, that went, you know, mm. four hours later, you'd have to take another dose to get the same pain effect. The problem with those drugs is that they wear off and, and people need more of them. And, and particularly when you were in a setting like a uh, a cancer ward or or uh you know places where people were dying and were in terrible pain uh towards the end of life you wanted drugs that would last for a long time would allow people to sleep through the night so the whole idea of uh ms content which was a morphine based drug a continuous release morphine based drug which is the first drug of this type that Purdue sold uh, was basically for cancer patients or people at the end of life to make their final days, weeks, years, whatever the case might be, uh, as comfortable as possible. That was a very limited audience, though. I mean, you know, limited marketplace. You know, there are, I guess, fortunately, uh, not that many people afflicted with fatal forms of cancer or the people who are going to be taking it at the end of their life, well, they're going to only, only use it for a relatively short period of time. And, and what they saw, in part because of changes that were going on in the medical profession, was the opportunity to sell a more powerful, long-lasting drug into the general population. And that became the genesis of OxyContin. And so per Purdue Frederick, which prior to this had sold pretty mundane type products, Betadine, I think, and some earwax removal product gets into a whole new category. And to do so, they put into full effect the Arthur Sackler go-to-market playbook. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, Arthur Sackler is dead at this time, but his brothers have been schooled in his marketing playbook. And the company basically does exactly what Arthur Sackler would have done in the same situation. It generates, you know, half-baked scientific articles. It hires doctors to go promote OxyContin. I mean, the way it's described in the book, you know, Traditionally, drug companies were very kind of skitterish about promoting addicting drugs to doctors, right? It's sort of like, well, doctors aren't interested in this. We don't know how to deal with this. We certainly don't want to run afoul with, you know, public perceptions about this. Uh, but Purdue Pharma kind of threw that playbook to the wind and just went full bore into, you know, putting doctors on its payroll, just, you know, handing out 
coupons for them to give to patients so they could get the drug essentially for free. I First mean, one's free. Went, yeah, they went wild and, and, and they reaped the whirlwind. And we have reaped the whirlwind in part because of their reckless and, as it turned out, uh, illegal promotion of this drug. The, and the whole differentiator here is that that it was not that OxyContin was non-addictive because it had this continuous release and it didn't create the peaks of euphoria that that uh, a, a immediate release drug would. How did how did they present this to the FDA? Did they present it with any data to back it up? And 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 why did the FDA greenlight this thing without any data if it wasn't there? That's one of the most you know fascinating and also depressing aspects of this story in the sense that, you know, you, one, we all would like to think that, you know, the FDA, it's like they're into science, they make decisions based on science. In this case, there was not a shred of science to back the theory that continuous, that the people who abuse drugs would be less attracted to, um, time-release drugs than they were to immediate-release drugs. Because as you say, people who like to get high from drugs want a quick hit, right? They want to feel it right away. They don't want to hang out for four hours waiting for this drug to kick in. So, you know, the argument from Purdue was that, well, they're going to stick with immediate-release drugs like Vicodin or Percocet because it's going to take a while for them to uh, feel the effects of Oxy. But there, was, there were no clinical trials done to prove that. Uh, clinical trials involving opioids are very difficult to run for a variety of reasons. And so they just promulgated this theory. And there was essentially one person at the, uh, at the um, FDA, uh, a drug reviewer by the name of Curtis Wright, who basically fell under, you know, the spell of this theory that Purdue was promoting, and I believe also under the spell of Purdue in terms of their ability to charm him and uh, and greenlit this thing, and and once you know gave them the ability to use a marketing phrase, which is which was something to the effect that you know it is believed that time-release drugs are less prone to abuse than immediate-release drugs. But Purdue then took that phrase, which was just said, it is believed, and turned it into a statement of fact and basically began promoting it as less prone to abuse and addiction than competing painkillers. You said just a minute ago that, that people who like to get high, but the problem here is, is that people who didn't know that what they're taking was wildly addictive were, were, were being prescribed OxyContin. Now, I've taken Vicodin for dental work, and I remember feeling so euphoric. I was giving, I gave a talk at UCLA one time, and I was on Vicodin, and I remember thinking, I am bulletproof. I cannot, I cannot lose today. This, this yeah. is exactly how I should feel every day. And then I thought to myself, I wonder why my dentist only gave me four of these pills. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like these drugs are incredibly powerful. And so, and so to claim that they're non-addictive without any science is, is kind of bizarre. How, how soon does it take for Oxy to start wreaking havoc on, on the people who took it? Almost immediately. I mean, the, the startling thing, and, and, you know, I didn't, it was only later when I was able to receive or uh, was given this 
confidential government memo that was prepared uh, for the uh, prosecution of the Purdue Pharma executives, that I realized that the company was receiving reports of the drug being abused almost from the second it emerged on the marketplace. In fact, the company also had received reports and I can document that these in painkiller, that the predecessor drug, MS content, was also being abused and also sought, being sought out by drug abusers, but they suppressed that information and never gave it to doctors and never gave it to the FDA when the FDA was considering the application to get you know special status for OxyContin. H had they done so, I don't believe the FDA would have ever given them this information had they shared the information they had on ms content with doctors they never would have accepted the the claims being made for oxycontin and and in some ways you know the story of oxycontin you know is also the story of this company's uh suppression of science and lies uh, even before OxyContin appeared on the market. You know, when Tylenol had the big um, crisis back in, I got was at the 80s, I guess, you know, it was made by Johnson & Johnson, a public company. Right. And the CEO, I can't remember his name at the time, uh, is sort of legendary in management lore for taking responsibility and 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 taking the pain of a, of a huge hit to their profits in the short run to protect the brand. Do you think if, mm -hmm. if this had been happening at a public company, we would have had a different outcome? I have no doubt about that. Uh, you know, one of the things that I've been struck by and have thought about as as the whole, um, you know, as, you, as, you're, as some of your listeners may be aware, uh, Purdue Pharma is now in bankruptcy uh, because of the large number of lawsuits it's, face, it's facing from states and municipalities and individuals related to OxyContin. And throughout this whole process, the Sackler family and, and, and the members of the Sackler family, the descendants of the original founders who continued to run the family, uh, run the company, have all claimed, you know, ignorance of this. We had no idea that this was going on. You know, had we known, we would have done something different, blah, 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 blah. Look, I don't know exactly what happened, but here's what I do know is that at no point during the heyday of Oxy, which was, you know, the early 2000s into almost the mid to late 2000s, did, when it was public knowledge that the abuse of this drug was rampant, that large quantities of it were being diverted onto the streets, uh, so on and so forth, did Purdue Pharma ever stand up and say, you know what, we're stopping sales for right now. We're gonna pull back on this. Or you know what? We believe that 10% of this drug is being diverted for illicit sales. So we're gonna earmark 10% of any proceeds we receive for drug treatment or for whatever the case may be. And, and I th often think how much would our, you know, how much would we as a society benefited from that? But even more significantly to your point, would the Sackler family now be considered pariahs if they had stood up earlier and 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 acted in a way that would have made them a teaching lesson for business schools? They certainly have become the teaching lesson 
for business <laughs> not any other kinds of schools, but it's yeah. certainly not the one they ever imagined themselves being. But they didn't just not stand up and do the right thing. They actually pushed back the other way and came up with, you know, when 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 tales of addiction started to make their way into the press, they came or or into the medical profession, they came up with the concept of pseudo addiction, right? I mean, they just right, right, basically right. cajoled and lied. And then when when people started to you know become um, uh, uh, tolerating the lower doses, they go from from forty to eighty to one hundred and sixty milligram tablets, which you know could basically paralyze a horse. They were so powerful. They, um, you know, it's 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 very interesting. Because when you sort of pull back and you think about, like, giving the Sacklers, like, trying to look at this from their perspective, and maybe even a fair perspective, one could see a situation where they actually thought they were doing something good, that they mm -hmm. had developed this drug that had worked very well for cancer patients, and none of those people were getting addicted, in large part because they were dying. <laughs> but maybe we can, you know, and there and there's some scientists that think, you know, these we can use these drugs successfully without addicting people. Mm -hmm. So so maybe, you know, there there there's there's a way to benefit society at large by, you know, reshaping how pain is treated by by, you know, slaying this sort of pure puritanical notion that the use of these drugs invariably leads to addiction, um, and, and you know we can make we can we can make a positive contribution to what is a very significant problem, and that is how do we treat serious ongoing pain? Great, fantastic, uh, more power to to you for for trying to do that, but because. They were so, I think, isolated and arrogant and blind. They could never grasp that this experiment of theirs was failing and creating havoc. And, and, and they just could not seemingly, like emotionally, psychologically, whatever, come to grips with having unleashed something of a catastrophe and then taking whatever steps they needed to do to try to stop it. There are many layers of tragedy in this story. Where's law enforcement in all of this? Uh, you know, law enforcement is pretty far behind the curve. I mean, you know, when, once you get to law enforcement, the crime is already being committed. Um, <laughs> right. you know, they're, they're, <laughs> yeah, they're, yeah. they're not a preemptive. So there's regulatory there's there's regulators and then there's law enforcement. Right. And so we had a regulatory we had a regulatory failure. Right. So regular failure lets the drug onto the market. Then all kinds of crimes start happening. And and then there's the companies committing crimes. So, you know, at what, so, you know, the regulators are done. They don't they're, they've kind of washed their hands of this. They, they feel paralyzed. They, they can't admit their mistake. And so, you know, law law enforcement is off to the races here. So they're mainly arresting people on the street who are dealing in the drug. Um they're arresting doctors who are running running pill mills that are, you know, making money illicitly prescribing the drug. And then you have the Justice Department, the United States Department of Justice, which begins to investigate the illegal marketing of the drug. That is to say, 
is Purdue Pharma marketing this drug in ways they are not permitted to do so under the agreement, the approval they were given by the FDA? And indeed, they find, yeah, they sure as hell are illegally marketing this drug. And then comes the issue of, well, how serious is that? You know, and, and what are we going to do about that? And what types of crimes are we going to charge the company with and people within the company with? And we know now from from the secret Justice Department memorandum that I write about in the book and also wrote about first in the New York Times, uh, that back in 2006, when the Justice Department was concluding its investigation, the prosecutors on the ground were arguing that the executive, three executives of Purdue Pharma should be charged with felonies, very serious felonies, you know, lying to Congress, uh, lying to the public, lying to doctors, et cetera, et cetera, crimes that could have put them in jail for several years. Unfortunately, though, don't we know, though we don't know the exact mechanics of how and what happened, Purdue, uh, lawyers for Purdue and these executives were able to successfully put enough pressure on the leaders of the Justice Department in Washington, D.C., the political appointees, for them to block these recommendations and get these charges reduced to misdemeanors, which are, you know, basically, you know, minor slap on the wrist. Slap on the wrist yeah. So, you know, it, it's really... Uh, a remarkable, remarkable story of failure by law enforcement, a very dis dispiriting one, because, you know, if you look at the arc of the opioid epidemic, if three executives of a drug company have been sent to prison in 2007, the subsequent, you know, flood of pain, pain pills from other manufacturers that engulfed, you know, states like West Virginia and Virginia and Ohio and all throughout the Midwest that, that then took place over the next decade and fueled the, the opioid epidemic would never have occurred, I believe, and so, or certainly would have been significantly diminished. I mean, executives don't like to go to prison. And, you know, nobody's family wants to, you know, you know, honey, it's it's daddy's last meal before he goes away for three years. Mm -hmm. uh, don't be sad. He'll be back someday. No, 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 no family, you know, wants to have that experience. You talk about the cycle of 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 how, you know, uh, early early penetration of the of of opioids into the market lead to very amplified uh, numbers of deaths later on. And in fact, I did a little research in the CDC tracked three waves of opioid deaths in the 90s from prescription opioids, uh, not just Oxycontin, but but others. Mm -hmm. And then in the second, in the early aughts, there's a heroin overdose. And in the last 10 years, it's been uh, mostly synthetic opioids. Right. We go from a, we go from an annual overdose, opioid overdose rate of 21,000 in 2010 to over 68,000 in 2020 for a total of 564,000 overdose deaths between 1999 and 2020. And that's from prescription drugs, right? Well, the, the, well, it says from 99 to 2020, opioids of all sources, including okay. 
heroin and fentanyl would be over 564,000. Where do you think we go from here? Do you have any hope for the future? You know, I, I kind of think about that question. I hope is not necessarily uh, something I think about when I, or feel when I think about it. You know, I, 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 obviously there's been lots of good work being done by people in uh, medicated, medication-assisted treatment, you know, drugs like buf- buprenorphine, uh, substitutes that uh, people are given to, to satisfy their opioid craving. That's been successful to some degree. I don't know. I, I guess I eventually have come to the point where what's the goal here? Is the goal to eliminate opioid use or is the goal to save lives? And if you believe that the goal is to save lives, then you really have to start thinking about not only medicated, medication-assisted treatment, but legalization, safe injection sites, drug testing sites where, you know, uh, products can be tested for the presence of fentanyl. I mean, there was a very frightening story uh, in the Wall Street Journal the other day about, you know, three New Yorkers, you know, young professionals who like cocaine and and, and they all got home deliveries of cocaine from their uh, supplier. Unfortunately, it was all cut with fentanyl and, and these three people all died of overdoses. And, and, you know, that's the type of crazy situation we're in right now, where the, the, the presence of fentanyl or illegal fentanyl, I should say, is is so rampant that, uh, you know, this is the type of article we want to cut out and send to our kids to warn them that, you know, smoking as much pot as you want, but stay away from this stuff. Yeah, I, I was in a, a comedy club green room uh, not too long ago. I do comedy, by the way. Um, I don't want to say which one, but on the shelf was uh, a packet of Narcan and a drug testing kit uh, mm-hmm. that, that apparently now is a thing. You know, people have people have drug testing kits because you never know what's in your what's in your home delivered cocaine, right? Right. Exactly. Exactly. That's very, and that's a good thing. I, yeah, it is a good thing, but it's sort of, it's just scary. It's, it's, um... it's terrible. It's, it's, you know, I think about, you know, many, many, many years ago when I was young and, you know, smoked pot in college, like everybody else did and put all kinds of other things into my body, you know, like you can't do that today. It's too dangerous to do that today. It's sad, but it is just too dangerous. My kids are young, they're 11 and 13, but we've already had the conversation with them is if you're at a party, don't, you know, nothing goes into your body. It's you can't take a pill. You don't get a second chance. There is, there is no, it's, it's one and done. Yeah. Um, Well, I, I remember, you know, when I first started reporting about Oxycontin back in 2001, there were parents who I spoke to whose kids were at party and they were given an oxy. And they took it and they died. Mm. And this was not fentanyl. This was a prescription drug. And these drugs are so powerful, so extraordinary. I mean, you know, God only knows if Oxy had been around when I was in college, I might have been an Oxy addict before long. I mean, it's just like the the tragedy of this drug and certainly the tragedy of it when I first, you know, interdicted it as a reporter 
was that, you know, teenagers were, you know, are going to experiment with drugs, are going to experiment with everything. But now they, you know, were, were experimenting with something that really was unforgiving and that was going to wind up, unfortunately, with uh, addicting many of them and changing their lives uh, in a very profound way. So we've all read over the past few years about the the multitude of lawsuits against Purdue Pharma. Where did where did everything settle out? And if and if Purdue's bankrupt, did the Sackler family lose all their money, or did they keep a bunch and then just hid behind bankruptcy laws? Well, it's a really kind of an amazing legal story uh, in that what the Sackler family was able to successfully do was use what is normal kind of corporate bankruptcy proceeding, you know, a company's facing a lot of lawsuits or whatever, they declare bankruptcy, they, you know, pay their creditors a few pennies on the dollar, and they either go out of business or they, re, you know, reform themselves in, in a new way. The Sackler family was able to go into court here in New York State and say, okay, here's this deal. The company really doesn't have any money left, we're going to put some of our own personal money into the settlement so that the creditors get more money. But as part of that, we want the same protection, personal protection against future lawsuits that the company is going to get. So, you know, we want to be immunized. You know, this is a deal to immunize all of us, all members of the Sackler family, past, current and future from any kind of oxycontin related lawsuit and because the amount of money they were offering you know it was like four i mean i think it's now up to five or six billion dollars which was about a third of their total family fortune uh was so alluring to the states that were suing the company that they bid on it now the hang-up is bankruptcy law was not created to be a vehicle to shield individuals unless they file for bankruptcy as individuals. And there's some debate in the appeals court as to whether this, this, um, this settlement is legal under, under federal bankruptcy law. So it's not a signed, sealed, delivered deal as yet. And I, I think in my heart of heart, I'd like to see it fall apart. Not because I don't want to see this money going to drug addiction treatment, I definitely do, but I'd rather see my tax dollars going to drug addiction treatment. I, I don't, I don't want to look to the Sacklers or any drug company to be the the vehicle that you know provides us as a society with you know the financial resources to deal with our problems and get. And, and But in exchange, get a legal pass from whatever wrongdoing they may have uh, permitted or been involved with. Makes sense. I don't think we want to put a lot of trust in the family that brought us uh, th this problem to solve it for us. So um, the story of Oxy and, and opioids have made their way into the pop culture. Dope Sick on Hulu was very well done. I, I hear rumors that Painkiller will be coming to Netflix. That, that's a true rumor. There? I can confirm. I like that. it. Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm very excited about that. Uh, it should be coming out in the spring or summer of next year. Uh, it's starring uh, Matthew Broderick, 
uh, as Richard Sackler, who's like the Sion of the Sackler family and the person who was mm-hmm. running uh, Purdue Pharma during the heyday of OxyContin and uh, Udo Abuza, who was, uh, I guess, best known, perhaps to your listeners, for her role as Crazy Eyes in Orange is the New Black. And mm-hmm. um, and it's I was up on the set a while back, and it was, it's very exciting to see uh, this whole story uh, come to life. What do you hope people get out of watching the show or reading your book at this, uh, you know, even though it's been out a long time? What's the yeah. what's the hope they would take take away from it? I'd like to think that, that you know, the, the part of the, that this book has, you know, is still being read 20 years later. In fact, it's being read more 20 years later than it was when it first came out. That's that crazy, is, by the way. <laughs> it is crazy. But its resonance has to do with the fact that, you know, it captures, I be, I hope, what happens when we as a society become prisoners of ideas that are not true, that, you know, become prisoners of ideas that we want to believe and then ignore the reality that is happening on the ground. Uh, you know, and in some ways, I hope that the series, you know, captures that as well. It, it, it's, it's not just, I mean, it, it obviously is about corporate greed, corporate blindness, the blindness and greed and arrogance of individuals. It's also about our inability to take action, to prevent tragedy, to see tragedy as it's unfolding and do things to stop it from happening. Because sadly, you know, we have many people beating the drum about this now, but that drum was out there to be beaten 20 years ago. And, 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 uh, and we have to see this as more than entertainment. We have to see this, or I'd like us to see this, as something that informs us going forward. Because this is not the last disaster that is going to befall us. It's just maybe a disaster that we can learn something from. That's a good place to end it. The book is called Painkiller by my guest, Barry Meyer. Barry, where can our listeners find out more about you? Uh, they can go to my website, which is barrymeyer.com. Uh, they can read about me in uh, Patrick Raiden Key's book uh, about the opioid, about the Sackler family, Empire of Pain. Or my other writing for the New York Times uh, on the New York Times website, where I worked for about 30 years, covering lots of medical investigations there. I was, I was also going to bring up, they can also catch my act in The Vow, if they happen to be uh, fans of cults. Oh, in The Vow. Okay. Uh, we'll, yeah. we'll, we will put links to your uh, website in the notes. Yeah. And just, uh, you mentioned Patrick Keefe's book. He referred to Painkiller mm. as the book that, start, that started it all really. And so, um, thank you for your work. Thanks for, thanks for all the work you did 20 years ago. I wish people would have listened back then. I think what we see is not that I was the only, uh, person trying to sound the alarm about this, but I think they, I wish they had listened even before, even before that. (laughs) (laughs) You should never have found out about this. It never should have gotten to that level. That's the idea. Well, that's certainly Purdue had that feeling. Why did you find out about this, Barry?
<laughs> right. All right, Barry, thank you so much for your time. All right, Paul, thank you. Hey, everybody, if you like what we're up to here at Crazy Money, do us and yourself a favor by following the show on your favorite podcast app and subscribing to our YouTube channel. Also, click the link in the show notes to subscribe to my new Substack, where you'll get bi-weekly thoughts on the role of money in our world and in our lives directly to your email inbox. Thanks for sticking around. We'll see you next week.